This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, June 1st, 2023 edition. And as we usually do with Thursdays, we have Luke Guerrero with us. Thanks for coming. Excited to be here on the first of many gloomy days in June, I imagine. Yes, uh, we call it May Gray around here. It's definitely been a very, very gray May, and it continues today with June. Uh, usually it clears up mid-June, so it's like half June gloom. Half June gloom. At least here down in Laguna Beach. Now, we are here to not talk about the weather, but talk about your investments and your uh, your goals and the data and perspective you need in order to make good decisions with your money. And been doing this for over 20 years. It, it feels crazy. And learned a lot. And uh, the goal is to uh, partake a little bit of knowledge to help you take that next step in your own version of financial freedom. And I'm going to blend today's comments with what is on your mind. You know, we have topics and uh, discussions that we want to have, but ultimately the most important discussion is what's on your mind. So you set the table and you are a vital part of this program. So we encourage you to reach out with your finance and investment questions here on Invest Talk at 888 chart. And we're, we're going to give you the best viewpoint we can based on all of that data, all that experience, all that perspective that we have. And we do that without bias, right? Try to help you weed out the emotions, focus on the task at hand, and refrain from reacting too much to headlines. Because ultimately, when headlines hit, the, the move is probably in. And so uh, the temptation to allow those emotions to creep in based on uh, recent returns, based on headlines, based on what your cousin or your brother or your neighbor told you, uh, it, it all plays into those emotions. And our job is to keep you focused on the task at hand and create a good decision making process and not making one good decision, but making a series of good decision decisions throughout your life so that you can ultimately get to your end goal, which once again is financial freedom. And we want to help you eliminate those counterproductive habits. So we're ready for your questions on the invest talk phone line, which is eight at eight 99 chart. Now, our main focus point looks in the story. When your retirement confidence drops, focus on four key areas. And, you know, with the markets being volatile over the past uh, three, four years or so now, really since COVID, right, three plus years, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And that means those that are approaching retirement, maybe even in retirement, maybe your retirement's far off, but you are less confident in your ability to get there. We're going to look at uh, some things to refocus on, keep it simple, and try to improve your chances of having a successful retirement. Now, time permitting, we're going to touch on a few other topics. One is in regards to Wall Street's next big play, which is in the, uh, well, I'll leave it for our, our discussion uh, a little bit later, but it's in the energy space, and I think it's interesting. Also, we're, I, 
are we through? We're through earnings season. Uh, but looking back on earnings season, the companies are doing a few interesting maneuvers, accounting uh, maneuvers, accounting gimmicks, shall we say, to boost that bottom line. And we're going to look at what they're doing and how that plays into the quality of the earnings that you're seeing on these reports. And then lastly, uh, the vaccine makers are struggling. And we're going to talk about why that is and what that could mean for the space and the broader uh, the broader pharma space as well. So that's what we want to talk about. But ultimately, it's about you and your voice bank questions, which we're going to get to. One is on portfolio management. The other is on bonds. And we have all of this planned for this episode of Invest Talk, And of course, your live calls as well at 888-99-CHART. Now, let's take a look at the market today. It was... A nice solid up day, and it was kind of one of those good news, is, or sorry, bad news is good news type of, of days. We had the what was it, the the Chicago Fed PMI uh, uh, at the end of the day yesterday, it kind of showed a pretty bad number, and that fed into market expectations for Fed hikes, right? Yeah, and ADB payrolls also had uh, showed some that initial claims rose, but kind of undershot forecasts to show that the labor market's not as tight as what people were expecting. I think a lot of the performance of the market today was centered around kind of drawing down of that opinion that the Fed might raise the next meeting. I think the, the exact opposite is starting to take hold, which you can see in the, in the, in the odds in the Fed futures market. Yeah, and I remember looking at the, those odds early yesterday, late, uh, I believe, on, on Tuesday, and it was creeping up to an 80% chance that there was going to be a Fed rate hike uh, in the coming meeting on what's the date? Uh, June fourteenth, mm-hmm. and just a couple of weeks, less than two weeks away now. And now it looks like it's about an eighty percent chance of a Fed pause, and that's why you saw the dollar down pretty well today. And this goes back to what I always say: uh, a lot of people want a strong dollar, and they think a, a good, strong, powerful dollar is is a good thing. Well, it is also a deflationary force, and that means uh, asset prices uh, tend to struggle in that environment. So, you know, today was an exa- a very strong example of dollar down, asset prices up. Exactly. And I think it also goes to show that what you and I talk about a lot, which is to kind of take with a grain of salt what these Fed future markets are saying in the interim period, because things are in such flux and new data is coming out constantly. And, and you can't rely on six week old data based upon you know what the Fed's going to decide two weeks from now. Yeah, it's not just about that lagging uh, economic data, which most people pay attention to. But what is uh, what is the future of the economy and, and the Fed? They try to do that. I think they try to look at leading economic in- indicators, uh, which uh, jobless claims are somewhat coincidental, would you call it? Yeah, right. I um, but it, it, that's what they mainly focus on, are more of those, those coincidental indicators. Uh, and so what the, the economic data that, that we've seen over the past couple of days is showing is that the economy is slowing, uh, I think, at an accelerated pace. And that uh, obviously will mean the Fed laying off the gas of... Uh, of hawkish policy, and that means a weaker dollar and typically higher asset prices. So that was today, uh, but we're going to pivot right to our first voice bank question now at 888 chart Hi, this is Isaiah from Dayton, Texas. I'm calling about the stock ticker EXPI, Expedia. Just looking for your thoughts on this stock and an entry point. Thank you. All right, looking at Expedia, one of the largest travel online travel agencies, shall you call it, booking booking services, about a fourteen billion dollar market cap, 
And certainly they struggled during COVID because nobody was traveling, but there's a big bounce back, especially in leisure travel. And they're expected next year, Luke, to earn $10.43 an all-time high earnings and is trading at $98 per share. That looks like a fairly low multiple. You know, I think this is a name that you definitely have to consider if you think that the the, the leisure travel trend is, is going to keep up. Or do you think that a recessionary environment is going to... Uh, dampen earnings and, and travel. No, I think so. Looking at this, right, you see from the profitability perspective, they were pretty negative during the pandemic. And like you said, that's understandable. People were not really traveling. But I think you also do have to remember that although this company does seem to be turning it around at a time that people are spending those COVID sa savings, there are a lot of credit and debt headwinds looking forward. So I think that's something that you do have to keep in mind and maybe, again, take some of this guidance with a grain of salt that if the debt cycle does get as bad as some people think it will, this is definitely one of the companies that's going to take a hit because it's cyclical. Yeah. Now, one thing I really like about this business, though, is that they don't have much debt at all on their balance sheet. So not a leveraged uh, balance sheet. So you get into tough economic times. It's not like they're going to default on some major debt load. So that's one thing I like. And that they've they issued a bunch of shares during COVID, which is once again, understandable. But they've been reversing that. But they've been buying that back. Their, their shares exploded from 141 million shares outstanding in early 2020, all the way to a high of about 160 million. Now it's back down to 148. So they're using that cash flow, that nice free cash flow, which right now is about 2.8 billion trailing 12 months, that is still very robust and they don't have debt to pay back really. So what else are they gonna do with it? They're not, they're not uh, paying a dividend, so they're buying back shares. And so I, I, I kind of like the makeup of this company, but as you said, Luke, there is some economic uh, risk there, and the chart is starting to firm up. So, and it's been find, finding support in this uh, eighty to ninety or eighty to one hundred dollar range. Uh, I actually kind of like this. I do too, because again, I think what we were, what I was talking about is more emblematic of the sector in general. But there are certainly opportunities within that sector, and this kind of looks like one of them where this could be a good choice. I agree. Now we're going to a quick break. Please remember you can call anytime and leave your question on the Investlock Voice Bank, or if you're listening via the live stream on AM twelve twenty in the Bay Area, you can. Call Call now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 Chart. The stock market is constantly changing, and now with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. 
Let's go to Gene. He's in North Carolina. He wants to talk about credit unions. Yes, thank you for taking my call, Justin. And uh, you have Luke with you today, right? We do. That's great to hear that uh, you know, once a week you get a Cornell man in there uh, on, the, on the podcast. It's good to have him. Uh, I, I do have a, co- uh, a question about personal finance with uh, credit unions, but before I get to that, I wonder if I could give a quick comment about something on your podcast yesterday sure. about using a Roth IRA contributions as an emergency fund, a source mm-hmm. of emergency funds. Yeah. And I think that everything you said is is great advice. I think there's one caveat. I believe there's still a five-year rule for starting a your first Roth IRA and where you can't not take the money out for the first five years. Just You start a that, yeah, Roth that's, contribution for the first time in your life. Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I did kind of uh, forget about that part. But yeah, as long as the, the Roth has a, a life of, of five years, you know, that, that could yeah, be a good Yeah, that's why some people have. suggest that you, as early as you can in your job, mm-hmm. uh, the first job, you just take out, you, 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 you start, a, start a new Roth IRA even with $100 just to get the clock started and, and to whittle that five year down so that right. you, you don't have that limitation anymore. Yeah, totally agree. Great, great point there. Yeah, okay. Getting to my question about um, credit unions. So a general question about personal finance, you know, we have a choice in doing our banking, whether it's a, a regional bank, a big, big national bank, or credit unions. And I've used the credit union as the primary source of, to do my online banking and my local banking and uh, using debit cards and so forth. I'm wondering, do you and Luke have any opinion about using credit unions? My understanding is that some credit unions, uh, you know, I originally started using it just so that I wouldn't get dinged with little junk fees that banks sometimes give you. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them, those junk fees went away with no minimums and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, uh, in general, I, I heard that some credit unions, they kind of specialize possibly in auto loans or each one is kind of specialized in their own little niche of what they're good at. But yeah. uh, I wonder your general, your, yours and Luke's general opinion about credit unions. Well, I, I actually, I, my personal banking is with a credit union and uh, our corporate is with a, a large, uh, a large commercial bank. Um, so I, I kind of have both experiences. Uh, I, I see no problem using a credit union. You were right that they, some are good for certain reasons. Uh, and, but I think in today's day and age where with FDIC insurance and, and credit union has its own, uh, deposit insurance, uh, it's really what's right for you, what your needs are for, from a branch perspective and a product perspective. And you're right. Some, some are, are good auto loans. I know mine, uh, we get very cheap. I get offers for I used to anyway, two, 1% auto loans all the time. I don't know what they are now, but um, yeah, you're, you're right. Luke, do you have a comment on that? No, yeah, personally, I, I used a credit union to finance my car when I bought my car. That's, I think, I think one of the reasons why people use credit unions in the first place was because they have less overhead, they're cheaper, they tended to offer higher savings rates, right? Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the reason why people stray away from banks, now there's a lot of more availability outside of credit unions mm-hmm. for saving rates that are really high. So I think that's kind of taken a back burner. But certainly for financing purchases, I think it's a great, it's a great option. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, there's, there's more alternatives now than there used to be for your, your banking, uh, right? your, your, your Marcuses of the world, your Ally Bank, et cetera, that are online banks. Um, so I think there are, are some better alternatives. But uh, to each their own, I think they all have the, their pros and cons. Now we're heading into a quick break. I welcome your finance and investment questions. No question is too simple or too complex. You set the agenda. And Sammy from San Francisco, hang on. You are next on Invest Talk. 
Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to San Francisco and talk with Sammy. He wants to talk about snow, not the not, not the precipitation, but <laughs> Snowflake, uh, the technology company. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Uh, I'm looking to buy it. Okay. And what's getting you interested in the name? Um, it's a company that has actually has been doing uh, pre- pretty good, um, you know, overall uh, with their growth and um, how, I mean how they're acquiring other companies to kind of host their um, products um, in the cloud space. So mm-hmm. something that I've been watching, and it has okay. taken a dip right over the last year or so. Um, so I'm just checking in to see if you recommend buying it. If so, at what price? Yeah, so this is a cloud data and analytics play, basically, and they help enterprises uh, store, warehouse uh, their their data and make the most of it. And the, you're right, their growth, uh, especially on the revenue side, has been very, very good. Now, that's certainly been slowing down. A year ago, revenue growth was over 100% year over year. Last quarter, it was down to 48%. It's pretty much stair-stepped down every quarter since the fall of 2021. And now, now that's the, I guess you say negative, that's slowing in growth, but the earnings have started to actually come to fruition. They were losing money basically since they've gone public. And the last quarter, they made 15 cents per share and they're supposed to make 58 cents a share this year, 91 cents a share next year. The problem though, is that it's $167 stock. So if you look on even forward looking earnings, which are currently being downgraded by analysts, that is 170 plus multiple. That's pretty expensive uh, in my mind. Uh, and what's I think most interesting about this is the lack of really performance, even as a lot of the other cloud names have uh, started to really perk their head up, Luke. Yeah, no, I certainly agree with you. You know, I think I think there is certainly some good growth, although it's being slow, been slowed recently. They've issued a lot of shares in the past couple of years, which I think is a fine thing to do, especially given that their debt levels are pretty low. That's something that I like as well. I'm just not completely sold that right now is a good time to buy. And I'm not sold that this is the multiple that you're willing to pay. 23.7 times sales. Yeah. We've talked many times before. Anytime you're paying over 20 times sales, it's extremely difficult to grow into that level of valuation. That means the market's pricing in an extremely consistent level of growth over a long period of time. You're talking 30 plus percent for a decade. Okay. And that's to grow into the current multiple. So I would I would pass on this. And what, what I really don't like is if you look at the ratio between snow and the Qs, right? A proxy for other technology stocks, it continues to be in a downtrend. So while the stock has improved, the overall trend can, and relative strength compared to its peers has actually been pretty bad. So you mix the, the poor relative performance with the high valuation, I would stay away from snow until you get a reasonable valuation, which I think is, is far lower than this, at least 50% from here. So um, I like the progress they're making in their business and, and the fact that cash flow is now positive, but the free cash flow yield right now is 1%. Hmm. <laughs> That's not exactly uh, attractive. So uh, keep on your watch list, watch the progress, and if you can get to a level that's a reasonable valuation, I think this is uh, could be a buy, but not yet. All right, now our focus point today looks into the story 
When your retirement confidence drops, focus on four key areas. And this hits on a recent report from the Employee Benefit Research Institute. And it basically says that Americans' confidence to live comfortably in their retirement years has dropped to levels not seen since 2008, which is understandable. 08 was a shock to the system. It was a deflationary shock to the financial system. And it wrecked a lot of people's retirements and their, and their asset values. This has been a, a different environment as of late, and it's been an inflationary one. And I think that's uh, the uncertainty that, a, that an environment that most people have not experienced of an inflationary environment is, is probably what is bringing about this, uh, this angst amongst uh, pre-retirees and retirees. So the question is, what do you do when you are unsure about your path and, and whether you're going to succeed? Now, the first thing is thinking about where you want to live in retirement and uh, not just doing that two or three years before you retire, but in advance, many years in advance, so you can find the right time to make that move. Yeah, no, you know, some places are incredibly expensive. I think you and I live in, in some of those places that yep. certainly people people keep seeing. I, I think it, it goes back to this perception that people have, which is the reality of today is going to be going on forever. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that there's a lot of angst amongst not being able to afford things because when you have ridiculously high inflation, historically high inflation year over year, the perception is this is the norm. Mm -hmm. But it's not the norm. People extrapolate very short-term data sets long-term. Exactly. And part of this is getting in the right mindset and understanding that things ebb and flow like you and I and Steve always talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly, you know, deciding where you want to live early and understanding the costs is an important step regardless of what the future environment is going to be. Yeah, and everyone's lifestyle is going to be different. Some people want to play with their grandkids, and they maybe want a bigger home, right, to have their grandkids stay with them, and and that's going to be a big part of their retirement life. Others, maybe they want to travel a lot, So, and their kids have moved out. Maybe they didn't have kids, and do you really need a a big home? You probably only need a one- or two-bedroom, and you're going to be traveling a lot anyway. So, you know... Finding the right environment for you to live your retirement years in is very important, and, and, and the location is important as well. And then, like you said, maybe trading out of a high-cost area and into a lower-cost area is something that uh, you can do opportunistically if you plan ahead, but you have to plan ahead. Now, after the break, we're going to get to the other four points as well. Now, we're heading into a break, so give us a call now on Invest Talk at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. 
Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, before the break, we touched a bit on how to plan for your retirement years. And we touched on the real estate aspect of upsizing, downsizing, potentially moving from a high cost area to a low cost area. So uh, let's finish this. And the second point is come up with a a Medicare strategy. And most people, they start Medicare around the age of 65. There's Medicare Part A, which covers hospital care, skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, etc. Part B is diagnostics and preventive care. Then there's Part C, which you can get, which covers that along with uh, other coverage areas that you get for private insurance. And then Part D, which is prescription drug coverage. And all of this might matter to you if you are requiring or likely to require a lot of these services, or it may not. But planning ahead is certainly important, and you want to get ahead of that uh, at least uh, six months, four to six months before you turn uh, 65. Now, the third one I think is most important, which is your social security benefits. And you can start taking a 62, but how often, Luke, is that a good idea? Well, if you can afford to delay it, there's a lot of benefit to that. Yeah, there's a ton of benefit. Obviously, you get your full benefits at age 66, 67, depending on your age. But you get an 8% boost every single year after your retirement age up until the age of 70, which I think if you have the retirement assets to pull from, it's better to wait till you're 70. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what's even more impactful about running the numbers, when you run the numbers on when to take Social Security, it's that Social Security is inflation adjusted. And so the the higher you can start that amount on, the bigger those inflation adjustments are going to be each year. And so the later you file, usually the better, but you need to have a plan for. And this is something that I do with clients all the time, develop that that financial plan. Uh, And then lastly... Simply save more. I know we talk, Luke, all the time that uh, you you could make you could be one of the best investors ever, but if you don't save sufficiently, you're not going to reach your end goals. Right? Yeah, and you know this entire thing really is just about planning, planning, planning. Know yeah. about what you have on the horizon, what your investments are, what your ability to delay Social Security is, what your need is of healthcare coverage. All of this is about planning well ahead in advance. And I think going back to what we what we started off with, which was extrapolating data points out long term. Well, that's what planning is about: is understanding the likely outcome long term. You never know exactly, but 
understanding the expected outcome of uh, inflation, of uh, earnings uh, on, on your investments, et cetera, and your savings habits, that will go a long way to kind of quelling some of these fears that oftentimes challenging markets, challenging uh, economic times can can really throw into uh, your thought process. And uh, hopefully this will give you, this gives you a good primer on that and uh, you can plan better. All right, now on to the next invest stock, the story behind this question. Is it realistic to expect an aggressive drop in inflation through the end of 2023? Now, one school of thought sees the possibility of a soft landing and contingent, contingent on an astute monetary policy. And then we're going to get that story tomorrow. But let's grab a voice bank question that came in earlier from Germany on 8899 chart. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is uh, Paolo from Germany calling. Today I have a question about portfolio management and actually uh, a question about which is the, the perfect or a good allocation like considering the market cap. Um, right now I'm invested like in 28% in mega cap, 41% in big cap and mid cap 15%, small cap 10%. So I was thinking and I tried to get more into smaller and mid caps and uh, cutting my mega caps because I think uh, there might be more growth in small and mid cap names. So yeah, my question is basically how do you guys allocate considering market capitalization? Okay, I'm looking forward to hear the answer on the podcast, and uh, thank you so much for your, all the work you guys do. Bye bye. All right, that's a it's a great question. That's something that most people don't think about, right? They just buy names and they look more about the sector and not just about the size of the companies that they're investing in. Now, right now, the better values are in those smaller cap names, uh, but they're also higher risk. You've seen that this year, right? Mega caps have outperformed those smaller caps. So, but does that mean that's going to be long-term? Well, the valuations say that small caps are going to be better performers in the long-term. Small and mid caps tend to outperform large caps, but that's obviously not every year. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a risk tolerance story, right? Because the only reason why the small and mid caps uh, tend to outperform in the long run is because you're taking on additional risk. So without knowing, you know, personally what your risk tolerance is, it's difficult to say with an adequate uh, allocation should be. Yeah, it, exactly. It's it's hard to say just now and looking at those those, uh, those that breakdown. I, my natural instinct, you sound like a younger caller, would be, yeah, you probably want to trim some of those lar those mega cap names, especially, and, and invest in some of those more mid and, and small cap names. Now, of the different market cap uh, buckets, shall you say, uh, typically mid caps have the best risk versus reward, right? The small caps, they tend to, some of them go bust. They're small for a reason. Um, and the mid caps have uh, still room for a lot of growth, whereas those mega caps, the, most of the growth is probably behind them. Um, so I would probably be coalescing around more of that, those mid caps, right? Now let's go over to Boston, head over to the East Coast and talk to Santos. He wants to talk about bond funds. Hello, Justin. Can you hear me? Of course. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Thanks for taking the call. So um, I read on a, I read an article on Morningstar about that uh, bond bond funds are the way to go during the recession. 
to diversify or like to prevent the losses so can i know uh, like what are the bond funds and uh, where can i buy them well you can there are hundreds probably thousands of different bond funds that are out there now which one you buy is depending on on what your goals are uh you know do you do you want long duration uh, bonds do you want short mid uh, intermediate duration bonds do you want to take a lot of credit risk or not so you can't you can't paint bond funds with just a broad brush like that uh yes certainly bond funds tend to outperform during tough economic times why because interest rates tend to drop and bond funds tend to appreciate but that's not always the case if for example, right, Luke, a high yield bond fund, that's high risk. It's kind of a quasi equity, right? So it, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for ultra safe, then you're going to want some, something, something more treasury like, right? Yeah. And certainly if you're looking at where to buy bond funds, I mean, a lot of, a lot of funds these days, bond funds, equity funds, you can just purchase on exchange. There's a lot of bond ETFs that are managed by PIMCO or Vanguard or any of these large asset managers that are allocating to a wide array of strategies, be it treasuries, high yield, junk bonds. Um, so certainly there's, there's a lot of options out there and you can purchase them just like you would purchase any equity fund. Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't shy away from individual bonds, especially if you're buying treasuries. Treasuries, you can go to treasurydirect.gov. There is no, there's no reason to pay somebody to buy you treasuries. Exactly, exactly. You can go do that yourself. Uh, but bonds can fit in a portfolio in, in this type of environment, but understand that not all bonds are created equal and bond funds created equal. Let's go to Andrew in Utah and let's talk about the market. Andrew, you there? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yeah, go for it. Hey, uh, how's it going? Good. Good. Hey, so uh, I just wanted to get your guys' takes. I've I've been kind of caught on the wrong side of this this tech rally. Uh-huh. Uh, I have the uh, the uh, inverse of the QQQ, and uh, okay. I tried to get in on a short with Tesla, and obviously it's been going up. Just wanted to get your thoughts on you know what what the play is from here. Do you think there might be a, a reversal, or you know when the liquidity concerns after this debt ceiling kind of calms down do you think there there's going to be a reversal on the on these tech plays or should i just cut my losses and get out well i don't i don't think this is an environment that you want to be shorting tech um at least in the, in the short term now long term i do think many of those are overvalued um but with interest rates coming down that's really what you've seen right and this is really the the main driver of where uh you've seen those multiples re-expand you saw interest rates really explode higher to the upside all of last year, and they peaked out in the fall. And coincidentally, you kind of had the broader market bottom around that time as well, and the tech stocks really take off after all of that um, tax loss selling pressure uh, abated in the, the fourth quarter. You saw that, uh, that move to the upside. So in, in a lot of ways, these are long-duration assets. Uh, right, Luke? And, and that means that if interest rates are trending lower, which the 10-year peaked out around 4.3, now we're at 3.6, it's got a low as low as about 3.25, uh, and the Fed is likely to embark, uh, be near the end of the, the rate hiking cycle, you know, it's hard to time exactly when this rally is going to peak out, and it can be supercharged when you have a narrative shift like we have with AI.
Yeah, and I think that something that goes along with it is people are tending to invest in tech right now because they don't see a lot of opportunities in the real economy. Yeah. I think people are seeing a lot of traditional uh, asset classes slowing down, and they're they're reaching for something, like you said, that has had this massive narrative around it. And I don't really see that narrative abating any time in the short term. Again, in the mm -hmm. long term, I think you're going to have some reversion. You see a company like NVIDIA that is trading at over 60 times its sales. Is that high? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would say that's high for any company, but... I think in the short term, what you're going to see is probably some some more fuel around this fire. Yeah, and and from a timing perspective, I think it will be when the market starts to realize that the economy is no longer slowing; it's reaccelerating. And I think that's first going to take a Fed pause because obviously hawkish monetary policy leads to a slower economy, and you've seen that. But as we talked about at the top of the show, the fact that the economic data is finally showing what the market has been pricing in for some time that, hey, the economy is now no longer growing very strong and it doesn't make sense to raise rates. In fact, the next move for the Fed, I think, is likely lower. It usually takes five. There's usually a five month on average span between when the Fed pauses and when it actually goes into cutting mode. And so we could have that by the end of the year. So when exactly will that be? I think it will be probably when the Fed first makes its first rate cut. I think that's probably when you'll see uh, really that shift to uh, back to the real economy stocks. Uh, and that's uh, probably coming up sooner in my mind uh, rather than later. All right, let's go to Bill in Northern California. Let's talk about AbbVie and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, actually, I, I just bought a small amount of Johnson & Johnson in my uh, brokerage in uh, and I sold AbbVie. I'd had it for like five years. It was in my uh, Roth IRA. Um, I sold it at the high, which I had been watching the chart for quite a few months. But I, I just thought the valuation was out of whack. I sold it at 164. Mm -hmm. I was considering getting back into it in my taxable brokerage account. Um, but what do you what do you think about it going forward? There's this news about the Humira generic thing, and how how would that affect their Dividends potentially going forward because they've increased their dividends pretty steadily over the last decade, and also um, that, and then comparing it to Johnson and Johnson. Well, I think the problems with AbbVie are a microcosm of the industry more broadly. You talked about Humira and the Patent Cliff and uh, problems with that business. And there are a lot of these drug companies that are seeing patent cliffs and they're seeing the headwinds of more pressure on government budgets and the fact that maybe they can't charge as much for prescription drugs. And that was part of the Inflation Reduction Act and negotiating Medicare prescription drug prices. And so uh, that's, that's really, I think, the pressure uh, twofold on AbbVie. And that's why it's, uh, it's underperformed uh, pretty extensively as of late. I definitely, it's not the name that, that we hold. Uh, I do think there, there's major uh, risk there with, uh, with the Humera. Now, Johnson & Johnson, a much more diversified business, yeah. right? Consumer focused in, in certain ways. It has uh, medical devices, not just focused on, on pharma. Um, so you're getting a, a very diversified business. But is it still a business that you want to own, Luke? 
I mean, in terms of where the market seems to perceive its its future earnings are coming from, you know, they've been upgraded on estimates. I think I think if if the question is a comparison between the two, I think my camp is definitely in Johnson and Johnson for the for the reasons that you said, right? That it is a very well diversified business in a way that AbbVie has just not been not been doing well. Yeah, and and so my main concern though is I think you're kind of barking up the wrong tree. I don't think either are that exciting, right? The technicals look poor. Uh, you have those industry headwinds that we that we talked about. Um, so, you know, it's not one or the other. Sometimes it's neither, right? And, and that would be really my uh, my summation here. I'd be looking at more pure play medical device companies that don't have those patent cliff issues, don't have the Medicare prescription drug price pressures, and all of that. Um, so, I, I definitely would be looking in that area of the medical space if you want exposure to healthcare. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Bill, and hope that answered your question. And after the break, we're going to touch a bit on earnings and the quality of earnings, which, you know, we just got past the uh, earnings season. And we're going to look back and say, how did the vast majority of companies beat earnings? And hint, hint, there's a lot of accounting gimmicks. All right. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, along with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart Everybody wants a secure financial future. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now let's talk a little bit about earnings. We just passed earnings season and it was an interesting one because companies beat earnings in a big, big way. Of the 485 companies in the S&P 500 roster that have reported first quarter earnings as of May 26th, 77% of them surpassed analyst expectations. That's in a slowing economy. And since 1994, the average is only 66%. So the big question is, how did they do it? And they didn't just beat estimates by a little, they did it by a lot. On average, 6.9% above expectations. The long-term average is 4.1%. And the simple answer is some accounting gimmicks, right Luke? Yeah, some accounting tricks, if you will. I mean, it's it's a tale as old as time, right? Because as somebody who studied financial accounting a couple times, and, and it is as boring as you assume it might be, uh, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that there's a difference between accounting standards and tax standards, right? Mm-hmm. So just because a company reports a certain income doesn't necessarily mean that's the income that they're being taxed on. So one of the tricks that companies do is in terms of depreciation. And there's two things you can do there when you're taking depreciation expense out, is you can extend the life of an asset, right? So you can recognize less depreciation expense and therefore more income after depreciation today, or you can change the methodology behind you do it. You can change it from double declining, which essentially takes out the life of the asset early, takes out the cost of the asset early, to straight line depreciation, which spreads it out more over time. And so what you're doing there is you're making it appear as though you have more earnings when in reality you don't have more earnings. And Google, one of the behemoths of the market, uh, did this exact thing in its most recent earnings uh, reports. And they came into this year 
having missed analyst consensus estimates in every quarter for the last year. And it makes sense. The economy has been slowing. The spending on advertising is slowing, especially from the COVID highs when everybody and their mother was advertising online. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so, so it's understandable that their business is struggling a bit. But when they announced earnings in April, they showed an earnings report of $1.17, where analysts had been expecting $1.08. And since then, Google shares are up 18% since that report. But there are two issues with that. One is what you talked about, extending the life of the assets. And what they, what they extend the life of were their server infrastructure. And they changed the life from four years to six years. And that added six cents of earnings to their earnings report. Okay. And clearly, is, has their server farms changed? Probably no, not. No, no assets, no assets have changed there. It's just an accounting trick like you mentioned before. Yeah. And really, you have a double-sided issue here because essentially when there was an economic slowdown, you had analysts that were just across the board cutting earnings, cutting earnings, cutting earnings. So as you have the earnings estimates going down and then Google picking up their accounting tricks, you know, it, there's a wider gap than people expected there would be. Yeah. And what else? Well, another aspect of their trickery uh, was shifting stock-based compensation, which mm. is definitely something that uh, is underappreciated. Uh, but what they did was they moved it from January to March, and that resulted in recognizing less expense in the first mm -hmm. quarter relative to the rest of the year. So this is what was now going to be a slight tailwind to earnings report in the first quarter will actually be a headwind going forward for the rest of the year. This is why you get yourself a good accountant if you're a massive company. Yeah, and this is this is broad based, and uh, there is there's a a, a score called the the is it Banesh Banish M score. This is by was created by an Indiana University accounting professor, Masad Banesh, and based on that score, it found that a sampling of two thousand companies. This score was at its highest level in more than forty years. Wow! And usually, this is usually high when uh, we're starting a downturn. And so this was kind of a, it was, if you look at this score, you can really tell whether a company is uh, having quality earnings or not. And I think that's underappreciated is not just what that headline number is, but how did they get there? Was it true business prospects or was it accounting gimmicks? Be skeptical, that's the lesson. And read, read the reports. Don't read, just read, read. react on the headlines. Now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Remember to follow Invest Talk on social media. And thank you for tuning in. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. 
For more information regarding KTP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.